Behold. This is something very unusual. It's not the, the average event in Jewish history. This is a singular sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Now, I assure you that the Old Testament prophets shook their heads when they wrote and studied what they wrote. This is one of the marvelous things about Old Testament prophecy. They were moved by the Spirit of God to write, and then they had to look at what they had written. What does that mean? Behold. This is something very unusual. It's not the, the average event in Jewish history. This is a singular sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Now, I assure you that the Old Testament prophets shook their heads when they wrote and studied what they wrote. This is one of the marvelous things about Old Testament prophecy. They were moved by the Spirit of God to write, and then they had to look at what they had written. What does that mean?
Well, this is a great time of the year to preach one of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, I like Sunday evening congregations, not because they're bigger, but because they're hungrier. And we sort of get our appetites stirred up on a Sunday morning, and those who come back to church on Sunday evening, well, I know they're the hungry ones. So it becomes my task to give you some meat. Well, I assure you, as we wrestle tonight with this subject of why I believe in the virgin birth, we are dealing with a very deep, deep subject. Many men and women of God down through the years have paid a great price to defend the doctrine of the virgin birth. For some reason, the attack of liberals has been against this doctrine of the virgin birth. Now, you don't have to be an historian, uh, never mind a theologian, to go back into the history of fundamentalism, the late 1800s, early 1900s, and the battle for this doctrine of the virgin birth. I'll give you a little bit of homework. Just go on a Wikipedia search for J. Gresham Machen, M-A-C-H-E-N, and you read the short biography of that man who stood for 30 years. He was a Greek scholar. He was involved in Princeton Seminary. He was in the Presbyterian Church of America, and when the battle was on for the truth of the Bible, its inspiration, and in particular this doctrine of the virgin birth, Gratia Machen was a giant of the faith. He knew his Bible. He knew the Greek language, and by that means was equipped to defend against anyone in that Presbyterian church, presbytery or synod, to defend the doctrine of the virgin birth. But the sad outcome of his stand was that he was put out, both the seminary and the whole denomination. He in turn started what we know now as the Westminster Seminary in the Philadelphia area. And he also started what is now the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in America. And the battle of the issue that was on was this doctrine of the virgin birth. He died relatively young. I have to say that because he died about my age. And it is believed by many that it was his standing for the truth that killed him. Because of the opposition that he faced, the loss of friendships, the tensions, the battles that it brought upon him, he died a relatively young man. Mind you, he wasn't married, so he didn't have the support of a wife. He didn't have one by his side to strengthen him and support him through the issue. The virgin birth, nevertheless, is one of the key doctrines that needed to be protected. And here is what, well, Machen and fundamentalists, and if you understand the history, Gratia Machen was 
a fundamentalist, but he was not a premillennialist. He was believed in Reformed doctrine, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Hence, he commenced Westminster Seminary and gave it that name that it might be a true reflection of the doctrines contained within the Westminster Confession of Faith. But here is what is recorded. The fundamentalists contended for five doctrines, one of them the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus. And here's what they said. I want to read it to you. It's a summary of what their defense was. It is an essential doctrine of the Word of God and our standards that our Lord Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. The Shorter Catechism states, this is question 37, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, yet without sin. Now, tonight, I think it's profitable for us in this congregation, a few days before the Christmas season, to look at the issues of why we today believe the doctrine of the virgin birth. But before I go there, I want us to dig into what exactly do we mean when we talk about the virgin birth. Now, I made reference this morning that it is really more accurate to talk about the virgin conception than the virgin birth, because we know that in that stable that our Lord Jesus was born of Mary really by a natural birth. The babe was in her womb. Uh, there was no extraordinary means to extract the baby from the womb. She went through the birth pangs, the pains of bearing a child, and in a normal manner that babe was born, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and laid in a manger. So what do we mean when we talk about the virgin birth? Well, more accurately, we're talking about a virgin conception. And we're talking about Mary having never known a man. And that was her question to Gabriel. How can this possibly be? Having never known a man. And the answer is, what is impossible to man is, is possible with God. And so it was put into the realm of the supernatural. And you will read here in Luke one thirty-five. Uh, the answer that was given to Mary. The, an the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee. Now, I want you to notice that holy thing. Uh, that's important. Which shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God. Not the Son of Mary, although he was, but this states that he was the Son of God. So what do we mean when Mary conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit and 
God became flesh. Well, firstly, let's start at the beginning. There was no change in the Trinity whenever Jesus was born of Mary's womb. There are three persons in of the Trinity, and the body of Jesus did not make it four persons. Firstly, because what Jesus took and into union with himself was not another person, but a nature. And that's why it's important to see that the angel's word to Mary was that holy thing which shall be born of thee. The, the human nature of Jesus had no personality prior to union with Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. So there is no change in the Trinity. The second thing to be very clear on is that it was the second person of the Trinity that took into union a human form. Not the Father, not the Son, but the second person, or the Logos, as he is described in John chapter 1. And so, it was an added nature, not an added person. There are not four persons. There's an added nature to the personality of the Logos, the second person of the Trinity. Also, the incarnation is very different from reincarnation. Because before that moment, when Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit and that uh, human body began to form in her womb, before that moment of conception, there never was a body. There never was a physical nature, because God is spirit. God always was spirit. God the Father is a spirit. God the Holy Spirit is a spirit. And up to that moment of the incarnation, that conception in Mary's womb, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was also a spirit. But he took into union with his spirit nature a human nature. And so it is not reincarnation because there was no body prior to this. Also, it is not a change of, of man ascending in some evolutionary faction, but rather it is God coming down to dwell with men and humbling himself into
Also, we need to have it very clear in our minds when we talk about the virgin birth, the, the miraculous conception, that it was a direct work of creation. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit moved in creating power to produce that body in Mary's womb. And just as when God made Adam of the dust of the ground, God created Adam sinless. This is very important because we believe in a sinless Savior, pure, perfect, untainted by sin. And when God made Eve, he took her from the rib or the side of Adam and fashioned woman who was sinless. This is before the fall. And what you have in the incarnation, the virgin conception, is a repeat of that creative work that took place in the garden when God created the first man and the first woman. We also need to realize that we mean by the virgin birth, by this incarnation, that Jesus Christ, the person, is 100% God, but he is also 100% man. No halfway to, halfway from position is tolerable. He is everything that God the Father is. He is everything that God the Holy Spirit is. And in his human nature, he's everything that you and I are. And that brings us to the point that he had self-awareness, consciousness, both as God and as man. Now, our puny little brains will never take it all in. But I can point you to scriptures where in one place, Jesus acted with all the characteristics of manhood. And in the very same chapter, he acted with the characteristics of Godhood. And sometimes Jesus acted as man. Sometimes he acted as God. Let's turn to one, just for an example here, to John chapter 4 and verse 7. We have the account of the woman at the well. 
John chapter 4 and verse 7. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. Now we have to believe that Jesus genuinely wanted a drink, and he was thirsty. That's a human experience or feeling. Jesus was hungry. Jesus was weary. He needed rest, as humans do. Jesus went to sleep. We know that for sure in the back of the boat. Jesus needed to draw apart and find a seclusion to get alone with his Father and away from the crowds. Those are all human experiences. But also in John 4, if you go down to verse 14, when he talks to this woman, he says, But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And so in this one encounter, this one conversation with this woman of Samaria, you will see the Lord Jesus acting humanly, thirsty, and yet he's offering to this woman who no doubt had deep, deep spiritual need, water of life, eternal life. And in that he spoke as God. And so when we talk about the virgin birth, we talk about this unique personality of Jesus, the God-man. And that's the language of Christianity. It's the language of the gospel. We have a Savior who is God, but he's also man. And he is thereby perfectly divinely equipped to be the Redeemer of his people, to represent us before God, and to become a sacrifice for us in his death, and that in his death his blood is not just of human value, it is of infinite value. And so the person of the Lord Jesus, united to his humanity, is the perfect Savior whom we need. And of course, that's the great story of the incarnation. God sending his Son. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And he is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, we come to why I believe in the virgin birth. And there are a number of things that certainly convince us, because it was foretold in the Old Testament Scriptures. If you had someone that just bounced onto the scene at the beginning of the New Testament and said, I am this unique person, and nobody had any clue of such a person coming, well, we would have question marks galore. We would fill the notebook with questions. But we understand that this person that I've just sought to describe somewhat in theological terms, but in biblical context, this unique person, God, man, come from heaven, descending to be amongst men and to be the redeemer of men. Was ever such a person expected in the world? Well, as we learned this morning, God was preparing the world to send his Son into 
the world for us. And right at the beginning, the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. But there is a text that talks about the virgin birth. We'll go back to Isaiah 7:14, and it gets very specific. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, where we have this reference to a virgin and a child and certain things about this child which are supernatural. Isaiah 7 verse 14, therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, this is something very unusual. It's not the, the average event in Jewish history. This is a singular sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Now, I assure you that the Old Testament prophets shook their heads when they wrote and studied what they wrote. This is one of the marvelous things about Old Testament prophecy. They were moved by the Spirit of God to write, and then they had to look at what they had written. What does that mean? How can it possibly be that a virgin shall conceive and bear his son, and his name shall be Emmanuel? You can see that God, through his prophets, was preparing Israel, his people, for the Messiah to come. And the sign, the evidence that he would be born of a virgin, and he would be God in the flesh. Now, remember, this was about 700 years before the Lord Jesus was born. And this promise was meant to be a tremendous encouragement to the downtrodden position of God's people. This prophecy actually was written before Jerusalem fell and before the people of God were carried off. And so, through all the trials and troubles of their days, they would cling to this promise. God would send a Savior, and this would be a sign. He would be born of a virgin, and his name would be called Emmanuel. You are listening to Let the Bible Speak, the radio broadcast of the Free Presbyterian Church in Canada. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. If you missed part of today's program or would like to hear it again, you can find it archived by program date on our website. Just go to www.ltbs.ca. CA for Canada. There you can read my blog, find my Bible study notes, audio and video sermons, as well as helpful articles. Or you can go to our podcast on iTunes. We're on the air Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for our full church broadcast and Monday to Friday, 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. on this station to bring you the gospel from our free Presbyterian church here in Cloverdale. We also invite you to our church services on Sundays, 10.30 and 6 p.m. Through our website, you can listen and view to our online services at 10.30 and 6 p.m. Make it your Sunday worship. Click on the Live Now button on the home page of our website. Or if you would like to talk with me one-on-one -on -one as a pastor, please give me a call. The phone number is 
2040. The mailing address is 1879058 Avenue, Surrey, BC, V3S1M6. We're located just two blocks north of Number 10 Highway on 188th Street. Our website again is ltbs.ca. You can join us Monday to Friday, 5 a.m., 5 p.m., here on this station as we let the Bible speak. Music